Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I was joined by William Reichert to discuss all things Nepeta His research and dissertation at Rutgers University led to super catnip cultivar selections and numerous papers regarding the impressive repelling qualities of nepetalactone against pathogenic vector insects and arachnids. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, welcome to Song and Plants. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is William Reichert. Um, for almost eight years, I was in charge of the Nepetocateria breeding program at Rutgers University, where we developed multiple sets of IP. We deliver technical deliverables in terms of insect repellency. And likewise, we licensed our supply of our catnip lines to the largest private seed company in North America. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining me. So can you tell me a little bit about catnip in general, like the morphology, what to expect if you want to grow catnip? Yeah, sure. Briefly, I guess uh, it's a member of the mint family. So it contains essential oils, all different types of chemicals that, you know, may or may not attract uh, other insects in this world, but it's a short-lived perennial, lives about two to three years, depending on what variety you grow. Has, I think it has opposite leaves, it has belabiate flowers, and on those leaves and flowers, it contains glandular trichromes, which contain the essential oils of the plant. It's native to, I think, Afghanistan, um, been bred all over the world. You can grow it anywhere as long as you manipulate the conditions correctly and have the right cultivar. It was an interesting plant to work with over the years. It, a lot of technical challenges that we weren't expecting. And it was really fun to take something that produced almost no oil into something that had a lot of oil. It's easier to find ornamental catnip than it is to find catnip that produces a lot of essential oil. Is that yeah. part of the reason that your project was going more in that direction? So it was actually the reason. Early 80s, or excuse me, late 80s, early 90s, there was a few research out of Iowa, I think it was Iowa, that showed catnip as being a, or that showed nepetalactone, which is the ubiquitous chemical in catnip, to being a very potent insect repellent. You know, I think they did some studies with aphids, ticks, mosquitoes, various species, and they, they had really good results. You know, people want to kind of shy away from synthetics, even though, you know, natural compounds may or may not be safer. But um, it was it was interesting because they they had this powerful chemical with all these attributes, but they had no way to get it. So. I think it was DuPont. DuPont Chemicals actually licensed this technology from Iowa, uh, shelved the project during 2008 financial crisis. And, um, you know, we were kind of looking on to see how we could grow it a little better over the years. I came into grad school, I think in 2011. That's when we were, I was tasked to take uh, germplasm that my advisor had collected over the years and to restart this program. And that's kind of where we were at. So that was the entire purpose of it. And that's why ornamental ones are everywhere, but high essential oil yielding ones are not because they just haven't been made. And how did you go about selecting and breeding to increase the essential oil yield? So luckily there were actually a few lines that had promising oil content in the beginning. The Lamiaceae family, their genetics are really diverse and it's very difficult to isolate oil production in terms of a breeding program. Due to the fact that it's not one, you know, what not one gene, it's it could be several hundred genes controlling this factor. 
including environmental conditions. So we got very lucky in the beginning when we took our stock, when we got our original breeding stock, and uh, we had a few lines that were very potent in, um, in, in essential oil yields as well as nephilactone concentration. We essentially put them in a field. You know, we cloned a whole bunch. We let natural pollination take over. We took those seeds the next year. We saw which ones were, you know, bigger, better, stronger, grew those out. And then once we had a plant that we were actually able to harvest. So I, I actually need to, I missed one thing. Um, when you grow something on a large scale, it needs to be adaptable to mechanical harvesting. So originally the plants were very low crawling. They weren't tall, they weren't erect, they were just very prone. So in the beginning, not only were we focusing on these you know, oil characteristics, but we were also focusing on, are they growing upright to lend itself to mechanical harvesting? So once we isolated a few lines that showed promise in morphology in terms of harvesting, as well as the, actually the lack of chemical diversity, because we just wanted nepilactone, um, we, we grew them out, right? We, we took them to a field, we put them in there, uh, we saw what worked. And then next year, uh, we took the seeds that were open pollinated and grew them again because we wanted to cross them naturally because these flowers are very small. Um, it just worked out really well that way. After that, that year was when we really started focusing on the oils because we wanted to start inbreeding the plants to reduce the genetic diversity in the oil production because we only wanted it to be a high producing species. We, only, we didn't want any low producers. So what we would do is we would harvest the plants, dry them out in a tobacco dryer, take them back to our lab, distill them in a, a glass distillation, a two liter glass distillation balloon, and basically look at the oil, the oil yields across the, uh, the species. After we obtain the oil yields in you know, grams per, I think it was a gram per gram, you know, weight by weight, what we would do is we would then check the nepidolactone content in it using gas chromatography. But once we did that, we kind of had a much better idea of where we were in terms of, is this project even really feasible? Are we able to inbreed this? Well, you know, what are we doing? And actually we were very lucky you know, breeding is a number, it can be a numbers game if you don't, actually it is a numbers game if you don't have molecular tools to assist you. Uh, and we weren't doing that. We were doing a traditional breeding scenario. So we were very lucky in the fact that, you know, even the next year after we collected the seeds of the ones that were best and the brightest, um, the oil content kept, kept improving and the nepidolactone concentration kept getting higher and higher. So we knew we were onto something. It's not the most advanced science, but when you're dealing with plant species that aren't domesticated, you can make rapid improvements right in the beginning because you're the first ones to look at it and you can kind of be like, oh, this isn't good, this is bad. You know, we're looking at it for the first time and we can make these rapid improvements. So, you know, all things said and done, uh, we had a plant. We had, you know, after a few more years, we had a plant that could outcompete any of the commercial varieties in terms of dry mass for pet toys, essential oil yields for distilled products, and nepidolactone for the insect sprays. So we, we were very successful and it was a lot of fun along the way. Huh. And it's self-fertile? Yep, absolutely. So inbreeding it would be not a challenge? Not at all. You could just isolate the one plant. You can either take a clone, put it in somewhere where there is no other plant uh, or the, you know, there is no other pollen that could uh, fertilize it or um, you know just put a bag over the seed out of the, on the inflorescence. Huh. And how long did the project take? The project was started before I got there. It took me about six years to really, I guess I should have put, it took me almost six years to really accurately depict what it is we had. You know, uh, my advisor had the germplasm way ahead of time and he knew there was promise in it, 
but I kind of came on and I, I was really into it. So I kind of just grew out his populations, did a lot of the work to, to show the editors and the patent agencies what we had was true. And we were able to do it. Wow. And how many cultivars did you develop? So we have two different cultivars of catnip. Okay. Huh. Well, patented. So there's two different patented cultivars, I guess. That's what we can say. Okay. And it shows promise for, I guess, the pet industry, as well as, as you're saying, the insect repellent industry. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of the research that you have done in terms of the insect repelling qualities? Sure. So the two cultivars we developed, they contain different isomers of nepetalactone. So uh, just the same molecule, but a mirror image. And in terms of bioactivity, that can mean a lot. Um, You know, it it could mean a lot in terms of how that molecule binds with the receptor and the target species. And so what we did was we took, we did, well, first we did research, right? We read what others have done and we kind of tried to expand on it. So I don't think there's an arthropod in the world that isn't either repelled or attracted to catnip. Uh, it's a very po- it's a very polarizing chemical. You know, it's a monoterpenoid that has very distinct a very distinct structure. It's very difficult, well, very expensive to make uh, synthetically. Um, it's an old world chemical. You know, this plant's been around forever in the in the mint family. And I think, you know, to hypothesize, you know, we can say it has a lot of relevance towards things that may or may not interact with it. So what did we do? So we read a bunch of research on what others have previously done with these different isomers. We were, you know, we were blessed enough to have the uh, the two different cultivars that made these isomers. So the experimentation actually was pretty straightforward, right? So um, after distilling the oils from the two different lines, we would take out these two different oils and compare them to myriad synthetic chemicals, as well as, you know, other forms of or different formulations and delivery formulations to actually get these like insects repelled. Towards the end, the focus went to comparing this to other natural alternatives, uh, such as citral, linalool, and I think every essential oil in the world has some radioactivity to it. But it was interesting because we started testing on mosquitoes and we got great results compared to DEET. So then we were like, well, you know, we, we go through the list of species that have been shown to have repellency and we we start knocking them off one by one, right? So yeah. we went we went to, uh, I think it was 80s Egypti. Those were repelled. And that's yellow fever. That's Zika. Um, in my dissertation, I have some Anopheles gambi, which is malaria. Uh, that's the malaria vector. So then, you know, we started knocking off these mosquitoes. And then we said, well, what else, right? So we went to ticks. I think we had the Rocky Mountain tick. We had deer tick. Completely repelled. And in a two-choice assay where we showed deep versus catnip, they actually preferred to be on the DEET side, which, uh, you know, they, they preferred DEET over catnip, which meant that they were more repelled to catnip and can handle the DEET better. So, so we kept going, right? We, then we went to bed bugs and we showed that, wow, you know, here's another arthropod that, you know, is repelled by this chemical. So again, we were just stacking evidence for, at the time it was my dissertation, but um, we were just stacking evidence to show that what we had is very valuable unique it's it's broad spectrum it's safe and we tried to put this oil into different formulations so we had towelettes we had sprays we had sticks we had gels and all of them worked right and the idea was to find a formulation 
that you could put the least amount of catnip in that had the most efficacy. And we were very successful in that as well. Wow. How do you keep it from just becoming volatile and basically gassing off? In terms of the plant? No, when you're applying an oil, like what would you put to stabilize it? I found with the natural insect repellents, they need to be applied very regularly. Yep. And is so it the same the, for catnip? hundred percent. You know, it's a volatile oil. Any volatile chemical is just that it's volatile. Uh, it's not going to be there. It's not going to be in the same concentration it was an hour ago. So yeah, so there's, you have many alternatives, right? So the first thing we tried to do was suspend it in wax, almost like a, like a wax stick repellent. Um, then you can try different densities of wax. Then we went into polyethylene glycols, which are just chemicals that differ in molecular weight. You know, the heavier the molecular weight, you suspect the longer the, the catnip will be there due to the fact that it can't volatize as easily. Okay. Um, almost, like, almost like a soap. Then you can go in a really high concentration and put it in a candle for the sole purpose of doing that. But if you really want to go crazy, the food industry, a lot of the perfume industry, what they do is they have these things called cyclodextrins. They cyclodextrate the nepilactone-based essential oils. And what that is, is it's just a fancy sphere that will encapsulate your your nepilactone molecules. And over time, the cyclodextrin is less volatile than the catnip oil, so it breaks down slower. So you get a longer response. Um, I'd imagine that most insect repellent companies today don't want anything to do with that because they're going to want you to buy more. Um, <laughs> if, if I can think about that right, yeah, that's probably what I would do. But, but um, at the same time, you know, there's many, there's many alternatives for it. Something else that you mentioned a little bit earlier was you said that you tested for toxicity and safety. Mm -hmm. How did that play out? Yeah. So, you know, just because something is natural does not make it safe, right? Yeah. Cyanide is natural. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a natural <laughs> chemical. And if you eat cyanide, that'll be your last meal. So <laughs> do we don't, we want to make sure that what we're putting on, whether we're having people breathe in, what we're having people put on their skin you know, is safe, right? And it's it's very important. One of the features that um, was the original research on this was some, you know, some terrible animal studies in the early 80s, where they basically showed that the catnip oil is less caustic than beef. You know, it's less dangerous, basically. So that was one of the original selling points. And I think why there was a lot of, you know, interest in this early on, but I, I don't take that, you know, that's one paper 30 years ago. I have to reevaluate, right? So, you know, with the exception of testing on mosquitoes, we did not want to test on animals with this. You know, that was just a personal choice that we all made as researchers at the time. And what we did was we found this really good company and they did, they had a whole bunch of non-animal models that predicted, you know, these skin sensitization aspects of um, epilactone, you know, is it safe to put on human skin? Yes or no. I, I heard this somewhere one time, but, you know, nothing's more natural than taking, you know, a hundred kilograms of leaves, distilling it into a milliliter of oil and putting it right on your skin. So we were really concerned that this might actually not be safe. What we did is we basically had our uh, compounds tested in, an in, in multiple in vitro assays, uh, showing that the formulation that we, that was most promising in our insect repellent studies was actually safe to be put on skin. And we were very successful in the beginning with that as well. Like sometimes I, I wonder how I got so lucky, but 
it was really interesting to, to, to see that when we got the results back and it came back that it was safe to put on skin and it would pass these, uh, you know, preliminary EPA guidelines for insect repellents, you know, it was just, it was another success. And it was just another way to keep moving forward, showing that we had promise in what we had. Huh. Something else that I wonder about that you mentioned is you said that it is a sort of polarizing molecule it either repels or attracts Mm -hmm. what does it attract other than cats (laughs) um (laughs) that's funny yeah Uh, uh, many insects the first thing that i noticed was bees in our breeding field you could walk by my plants you could hear the bushes at the research farm that i worked at where we did all of our trials i remember like a bunch of the other um researchers there were getting upset because i was actually hoarding all the bees (laughs) <laughs> like they raised bees specifically on that property for pollination and I was the only one that had them it, yeah so it attracts bees butterflies especially so you know there's a clue there on you know what the mechanism is what else cats of course uh, I just I just always remember so many insects on my bushes but plants were never they never showed signs of any disease or mechanical you know physical injury so it was it was interesting. So it's attracting the pollinators, but not necessarily the leaf-eating insects. I think so, but at the same time, no one wants to eat a catnip leaf. You know, a cop, <laughs> you know, a, a, no one wants to eat a catnip leaf, whether you're a human or an insect. So, and I think that's why, probably now that I think about it, that's probably why ticks were so repelled to it. You know, because mosquitoes taste and smell, ticks taste and smell. So I wonder if they're like tasting it rather than smelling it. And that's what they hate. I don't know. But, but yeah, yeah, it was. Um, and then likewise, it repels, it, it repelled almost every disease vectoring insect that was really of a concern. So that's amazing. Another question I had is uh, what does it smell like? Um, it depends on the catnip. There's catnip that makes all the lemon balm compounds as well. Um, and it's still Nepeta cataria. So that one smells like lemon and citrus. But if you get into the really rich nephilactone-based ones, some people says it smells like cat pee, others uh, like a mint plant. For me, it honestly, it was just this like overwhelming, like probably not cat pee smell, but like it took the oxygen out of the room. You know, like it, it just, it really didn't, uh, I don't know. It was almost like, um, like a dis, like not a disinfectant spray, but something like like it smelled like ozone. That's what it is. Huh. Yeah. So that was interesting. So in think- doing some kind of a natural insect repellent, you'd want to have the repelling qualities, but not necessarily smelling like cat pee. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, I I remember actually one time I had a whole jar or I had my repellent stick and I went up to a few people in the lab and I'm like, would you put this on your skin? And unanimously, no, you know, nobody wanted it. It's terrible smelling. There's different methods you can use to kind of take the smell away, you know, whether they're, you know, valuable or not, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, it's a little rough, but, you know, at the same time, you can always spike it with a citral or something that not only smells good, but is also an insect repellent. What about something like linalool? Yeah, why not? Because then you get more of like a lavendery smell. Yeah, you absolutely can do that. You basically turn into a perfumerist, right? I guess. But yeah. keeping that as the underlying active ingredient, I suppose. Yeah, 
if you really wanted to get rid of it, put clove oil in it. And that's that, but then at the same time, does that oil mask the nepidolactone smell so to the point where it's no longer a repellent? Yeah. Although I did find, I did a little bit of testing with ticks to see in terms of all the essential oils that I had, if there were any that would deter their grabbing on. And the one that I found to be most effective was oregano. Really? Yes, definitely. So I'd wonder if maybe combining with something like oil of oregano would give it a bit more of, would tone down the smell, but still be repellent. Maybe. Um, that's Carvacrol, right? Oregano? Mm -hmm. It's been a while. I should probably know this because I own two plants on it. But <laughs> um, Yeah, so that's Carvacrol. I tested... I tested a few oregano lines on mosquitoes. It really didn't do anything. I wonder. That'd be cool. I'd, I'd like to see that data. Where I am, it's really ticks that's the, the biggest concern. So that's why I uh, went down that road. Oh, but I can understand. It hasn't been particularly scientific. <laughs> <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> that's funny. And which tick, right? The ones that we have here are the deer ticks. Okay, so super small. Isn't that Exodes scapularis? I think that's Exodes. I could be wrong. It is Exodes, yes. Yeah. The But it repels both the females and the males, and the females are significantly bigger than the males. Oh, yeah. I used to buy um, I used to buy ticks by the by the hundreds from Ooh. Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. I used to buy them. <laughs> it's a dollar a tick. Um, oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I used to order them from Oklahoma State University. They had a tick rearing facility. And I used to buy, oh yeah, I'd buy them by the hundreds. Yeah, we would test them. I'd play them out, see how they react. And then, you know, that was that. Well, we also used to buy mosquito eggs. Um, we, we'd rear our own mosquitoes. <laughs> Interesting time. Wow. And that was for the catnip. Correct. Yeah. Cool. I always had to certify the Oklahoma State package because one time one of my our grad students opened the box and it was just a whole bunch of ticks in little jars and she wasn't too happy with that. <laughs> Uh, oh, they'll ship them overnight, FedEx. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so you mentioned oregano, a similar project that you had for oregano cultivation breeding selection? Same principle, except instead of looking for nepidolactone, we were looking for carbacrol. And almost done exactly the same way. That wasn't really a main focus of mine. Um, it was kind of like just a a little side project that we were able to finish. So all the work had been done with that. It was just more like we just needed someone to do it. So we went, I, I, you know, we went out there and grew a few fields a few years in a row. And I think, I forget what the concentration was at the end, but we were beating all the competitors really early in on that too. So. Oh, wow. And so that also was for essential oil production. Correct. Yep. Huh. Actually, I do have a question a little bit about the essential oil mm -hmm. production. So if you are growing a significant amount of catnip and you'd like to try distillation, when do you harvest? So that is a question that a lot of people have been trying to figure out for a long time. Because it, it depends on the cultivar. It depends on where you're growing it. It depends on how you're growing it. Long story short, always harvest before a rainfall. If you are thinking about harvesting, whatever stage the plant is in, uh, just make sure it's before rainfall or multiple weeks after. That being said, right as the flowers, it creates multiple inflorescences, terminal inflorescences, and 
once the majority of the inflorescence is the flowers are open, it is time to harvest. You know, that's my opinion. There's differing opinions on this at the moment, but the catnip community, it's a hot debate. When we think about harvesting any oil plant, you know, it's, it's related to all factors. Daylight length, you know, making sure it's not too late in the season, the temperature, the water content. But long story short, when most of the flowers on the terminal inflorescence are flowering, it's, it's most likely ready to harvest. And you're harvesting the flower as well as the leaves? So when I was harvesting it, we would cut the plant almost all the way to the bottom. We'd harvest all the stems, leaves, old flowers, everything, and put them and distill everything. But scientifically, you're going to get the most out of the leaves and flowers. Okay. What other projects are you, are you working on? Lots of different projects when I was in grad school. You know, we worked on, a, on many different plants for many different chemical compounds. I think my most valued experience was probably going over to Zambia multiple times, turning small farms into big farms and showing how, you know, you can grow certain types of crops that can kind of bring you out of these dire conditions. So that was one of the things that probably I enjoyed the most in terms of like growing, in terms of other projects, I I, I can't even count. We did hot pepper breeding programs, um, looking at specific capsaicinoids for flavorings. We worked on algae. We worked on pretty much anything that you could grow Wow! and think about in a way that wasn't food or like wood, like colorants, you know, additives, you know, natural antioxidants. So you don't have to have synthetic ones in your food. Just so many different types of like ways to look at it that weren't food based. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Just touching back at the catnip for a second, is there anything that you would suggest in terms of growing to how to just encourage a happy, healthy plant? Um, start it early in your house. Start it in January. It takes about a month to pop out of the soil. Get it out there early. It doesn't mind the cold. Lots of nitrogen, lots of phosphorus, lots of potassium. And just, just take care of it. Keep it free of weeds and the thing will grow. Doesn't require much water? No. Again, it's a it's it's more of an arid plant. And actually, before harvest, you should actually cut the water off. That'll increase the oil concentration because essentially the plant is trying to like suck water out of the soil harder. So it's going to increase its oil concentration. So you know, there's a few things like that that you can do depending on your goal at the end. Very cool. I've also yeah. found it's a prolific self-seeder. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a weed in some areas. <laughs> <laughs> it grows all over the place in my garden <laughs> where That's I awesome. let it. <laughs> yeah. Where I frolic. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's really been wonderful speaking to you. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I very much looking forward to seeing more of the projects that, uh, that you will be partaking in. Cause it sounds like you are definitely doing amazing things. Well, thank you. If you have any links that you would like for me to include in the show notes, send them over to me and I will put them there. Will do. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I've included links to some of William's research papers, as well as contact information in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments, head over to CarmenPorter.com.